Today, we begin looking at a series of chapters in John's Gospel where Jesus and the disciples share a meal in the upper room. Much of the content is in red letters, and it's confusing material for the disciples to process. We'll examine that context in a little more detail and focus in on what Jesus said about washing people's feet. Welcome to episode 18, Washing Up Before Dinner. Hi, this is Greg Hall, and thanks for coming back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Last week, we transitioned out of chapter 12, which was the end of the public ministry. And this week, we dive into chapter 13 of John, which begins the upper room discourse. It's the beginning of several chapters, John chapters 13 through 17, that are largely red letters. And I thought I'd mention just at the beginning that it's actually unclear exactly when they leave the upper room setting. Some people point to Jesus's brief comment in John 14, 30 and 31 as the actual time of departure from the Last Supper. Those verses I'll just read real quick. Jesus says, in starting in 30, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And then there's this really strange just last statement in verse 31 to close out the chapter. It says, get up, let us go from here. <laughs> and so some people read that and say, well, that's obviously when they left the upper room. And if that's true, then the content that follows in chapter 15 through 17, again, largely red letters, is Jesus speaking somewhere outside of the upper room, but still within the city proper. But other people take the comment in John 14, 31 as just maybe some sort of a, hey, let's get started cleaning up and get ready to go type statement. And if that's true, then the author's comment in John 18, 1, at the end of the red letter section of chapters, would signify the time they actually left the upper room. John 18, 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So that could just be exiting the upper room and then going straight over the ravine of the Kidron. But if you understand the statement in John 14, 31 to actually be the time that they left the upper room, that just means they're walking and talking for three chapters, just like a really good West Wing episode. But no matter when you think they departed the upper room, the next few chapters contain a large amount of red letter teaching. And based on many of the disciples' responses, recorded statements that we have here in Scripture, we have some indication that it's really not easy material to process. What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, here in John chapter 13, in verse 6, Jesus comes to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, you can say that a number of different ways, but it always ends in a question mark. And then he says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head also. Safe to say, Peter's a little confused by what's going on in the upper room and what Jesus is trying to communicate. In John 13, 36 and 37, Peter again asks the Lord, where are you going? Why can I not follow you right now? <laughs> I will lay down my life for you. If we skip into chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas gets in on the questioning, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And in verse 8 of chapter 14, Philip gets in on it, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. 
Skipping down to verse 22, in the same chapter, Judas, the one that's not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? But it's not just at the beginning in these first two chapters. If we skip down to chapter 16, verse 17, some of his disciples then said to one another, they're talking amongst themselves now, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me, and because I go to the Father. The disciples are baffled. But eventually Jesus speaks a little more plainly to them, and they comment on that as well. His disciples in verse 29 of chapter 16 said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Well, all that to say that the disciples, in large part, didn't have a clue what was being communicated to them at the time. So, many of us are in good company as we read this too. Most of it is obscure and abstract ideas presented so that later things would make more sense. Well, later after what? Well, it's after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension had occurred. And it's those events that would make Jesus' teaching here in the upper room more clear. Those are the events of Jesus' hour. One of the things I've had an opportunity to do over the last several years is be a part of people's wedding day as their officiant. And sometimes in a wedding ceremony, the couple will want to do some sort of a union ceremony, symbolism type thing. You may have seen it. Some people uh, pour different color sand together into one container. Some people light candles from two separate into one. I was reading online the other day, and there's a ceremony for weddings that I haven't actually got to ever witness. And it's a foot washing ceremony. And there were some pictures of the couple that decided to do this. And one of them is seated, and the other one is kneeling down before them with a basin. And while I think the symbolism is beautiful, part of me just doesn't quite understand why you would want to take off your socks and shoes at that time in your life and get your feet washed. And I kind of wonder, how often does that happen the rest of the marriage? (laughs) Well, where does an idea like that come from, to do that type of thing in a wedding? And the answer is right here in John chapter 13, because right before dinner, Jesus is the one that gets up and washes his disciples' feet. And at the end of this, he's going to encourage his disciples to do the same thing. So we're going to unpack the scripture a little bit about Jesus washing his disciples' feet and what it is exactly that he may have been asking them to do in their context. And then we'll begin to ask the question, how is that applicable to us today? But I want to begin by just uh, having the discussion that this whole foot washing thing really needs to be understood on two different levels. Let me kind of explain in a little more detail. Jesus cleansing his disciples' feet was done with humility and with a servant's heart. And to some extent, that is the way we should be understanding it. But there's also a whole separate context of cleansing that Jesus is referring to in this process that sometimes takes a back seat and sometimes is forgotten altogether when we read this text. And I'd like to share a short statement 
from an article with a long title. <laughs> it's called Washing One Another's Feet as Jesus Did, colon, Revelatory Activities and the Progressive Sanctification of Believers. It's written in 2013 by Asumag. And he points out just a small detail that I think is worthy of mentioning. He says this, It is well known that there appears to be a two-tier interpretation of the foot washing in John 13, namely, A, John 13, 6-11, which interprets the acts along the lines of participation and purification in Jesus, followed by, B, a moral and ethical interpretation in John 13, 12-20, which construes it as an example of humble, self-sacrificing service of love. So from that article, we get the idea that there are probably two different levels of understanding going on with this foot washing. There's a tier of what he's doing that has some symbolism in how, in the process around how people get saved. And then, secondly, a second level is just a simple moral, ethical interpretation about being humble and being willing to serve people in love. And my experience is that as I think about foot washing, it's so awkward to do in our culture. It's not a thing we do because we wear shoes and they didn't back in their day. That it's sometimes hard to get past the actual foot washing to what it was symbolizing in Jesus's day. So let's just jump in and take a look at the text about how Jesus is washing feet and how that might be understood on two different levels. Obviously, This action is a visible expression of the type of love that Jesus is giving to those he loves. And it's important to understand that it's likely that the disciples would have taken a bath just before attending this meal. So the foot washing would have just been to remove the dust that would have accumulated in the travel that they had to the dinner meal. And the foot washing would have usually been the job of the lowest servant at the meal. And if there was no servant, then it would have been the nice thing to do as you entered in just to wash your own feet. But here we have Jesus stepping into that servant's role and doing that for his disciples. There's a bit of a clue in the text about how this could be understood on two different levels. And we begin to see that in verses 3 and 4, where Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. It's that laying aside his garments, that phrase that caught the eye of Nida and Newman in the handbook of the gospel of John. They say this, took off his outer garment is more literally, he put aside his outer garments. They point out that the verb took off in the Greek is not the normal word used for taking off one's clothes, but it is used at other places in John's gospel. And they point out that it's all back in chapter 10, where we talk about the shepherd and the sheepfold. And it's in chapter 10, verse 11, that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That same Greek verb that John decides to use at the Last Supper when Jesus lays down his garments. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a stretch. But back in chapter 10, Jesus made a point to use this verb over and over again about him laying down his life for the sheep. He said it there in verse 11, again in verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, 
I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. And again in 18, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And it's all those uses of the Greek verb to lay down that when Jesus stands up to do the servant's job of washing his disciples' feet and he takes off his garment, the author John decides not to use the normal Greek term for disrobing, but he goes back and he picks out this verb, the one that he used back in chapter 10 to describe the laying down of his life. By the way, the thing that Jesus is just about to do at the end of this meal, they're getting up and they're going to the garden, and that's what Jesus is doing. So Nida and Newman suggest that we can see that use that John has done of that verb laying down. And it's not just that one. It's also the taking back up of Jesus's garments at the end of the process. In chapter 13, it says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined again at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? And that verb for taken up in the Greek is the exact same verb used again back in chapter 10 when Jesus describes not just the laying down of his life, but the taking back up of his life as well. Let me read it to you straight from chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, so that I may take it up again. And again in verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. We're sharing Greek verbs for the laying down and taking up. And Nida and Newman are suggesting to us that with that shared vocabulary, we can look at this act in chapter 13 of Jesus becoming the servant and washing his disciples' feet as symbolic of a deeper cleansing, not just of the feet and not just of servanthood and humility, the obvious things that are there in the passage. But there's a deeper level that we can understand the foot washing, and it's the ministry that Jesus has of cleansing us from our sin. Well, why would I say that? It's because part of the conversation Jesus has about this foot washing that kind of reveals that he invites us to understand it at that deeper level. It's in verse 6 that he came to Simon Peter during the foot washing event, and Simon Peter there asked, Do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter answered, Never shall you wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Which, if we're only talking about washing feet, Jesus' statement there really makes no sense. If it's only about washing feet, It'd be very short-sighted for Jesus to say, you know, you're not going to let me wash your feet. We're not friends anymore. But it has something deeper, something that the disciples did not realize at that time, but they would come to realize later what Jesus was doing. It's his ministry of laying down his life, cleansing those disciples that choose to follow him, and picking his life back up. Peter has a very interesting request in verse 9. He says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed 
needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. And again, if Jesus is only talking about bathing physically or washing feet physically, this statement begins to not make very much sense very quickly. Because then John steps in and says, For Jesus knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus is inviting us to see the cleansing of the feet on a deeper level, on a soteriological level. It's a cleansing of salvation that Jesus is describing for his disciples and displaying right before them. And it's a dual ministry of cleansing. Because Jesus says, he who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you all, that's a plural you, all of you disciples are clean, but not all of you. And he's talking from a belief standpoint. All but one in that room that night had become cleansed of their sins through faith. And Jesus is saying through his foot washing that there's another ministry of cleansing beyond the initial faith that we experience as believers. And it's the repetitive washing of the parts of our bodies and our soul that come in contact with a sinful world. So what are we to understand about this request to have feet, hands, and head washed as well? Well, feet are where you come in contact with the earth. Hands, oftentimes in scripture, represent the things that you do, the activities that you do, the things you accomplish here on earth. And when we talk about somebody's head, it's often representing what you think. It could be that Peter is asking Jesus, after his initial faith and initial cleansing by the blood of Jesus, to be washed by the living water in those places and those things where he represents God on earth, in his feet, in his hands, and in his head. And John the author speaks to becoming completely clean in another of his letters in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. He says this, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, that's Jesus, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So there is a cleansing aspect to the blood of Jesus, and it removes all sin. But there is also a second ministry of cleansing that the Bible talks about and foreshadows, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. We talked about it back in episode 9 a bit, all the references to water in John's gospel. And I'll just remind you, back in chapter 7, it says, Now on the last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And it's this picture of the Holy Spirit's work. John describes that. He spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And here, right before that process is about to take place, where Jesus goes to the cross, rises again, and is glorified, he is previewing a ministry that the Holy Spirit will have for those who have been completely cleansed by the blood 
but come in contact with the world and need a progressive cleansing as they live their life out in service to God. And who is it that accomplishes that cleansing as well? And all you have to do is look down to your feet in the upper room, and it's very Jesus himself. The man who's about to cleanse you with his blood on the cross is the one that also cleanses you as your feet become soiled on the walkabout of life. So I believe Jesus is talking about that pattern. First, the blood, which cleanses the whole body of sin. That's the thing that makes someone completely clean. And after that, the water. The water in the bowl that washes dirt and grime that we acquire as we come in contact with the world. It's an ongoing ministry. And it's a ministry, ultimately, of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is inviting the disciples to cooperate in this ministry with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus teaches at the end of the foot washing, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And sometimes we in the church have decided that the example that we're to follow is literally washing people's feet, which misses the entire deeper meaning of what's going on. And I believe Jesus is inviting those who believe in him who have been cleansed and are continually cleansed by the Holy Spirit's work to come alongside the Holy Spirit as they live their life to help others also experience that same ongoing cleansing as a part of the body of Christ. A little bit further down, in verses 34 and 35 of the same chapter, Jesus says this to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Jesus had shown that love symbolically to them in real time by washing their feet. But he's also inviting them at the same time to see that as a deeper symbol for the work that they're being invited into. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's a cleansing that we cannot do on our own, but we can work alongside the one who does. Jesus had given them several examples of how he loved them over the previous time of his earthly ministry. And he is then calling them, not just to the Jewish people, but all mankind, the rest of the world. And that's how they'll know that you are my disciples, he says. So the initial challenge that those disciples would experience was for they as Jewish men to develop a love for Gentile believers. And how did they do with that? Well, that's what we read about in the rest of the New Testament. The disciples are trying to figure out how to love like Jesus had showed them, so that their Gentile brethren could experience an ongoing process of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. So it's within the brotherhood of Christ, but it's across cultural and historical and religious divides. And I would say overall, they did a pretty good job, but it wasn't without its struggles. So you, if you're a believer and have experienced this cleansing, you've been invited into a spiritual cleansing ministry for each other. That's what we've been invited to. And it requires our cooperation in relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
And assuming that the same commandment applies to us today, how are we doing? How are we doing cooperating in the cleansing of fellow believers? It's a challenge that is designed for reliance on the Lord. On our own, we wouldn't come up with this idea. It took Jesus to show us how to do it. And it takes an active relationship with the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. So in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, you ought to wash one another's feet. And my question is, what is the equivalent of foot washing today? Oddly enough, I would suggest that it's not foot washing. Foot washing had a specific context within the first century in Israel, and it's because people's feet were dirty. (laughs) But we today largely don't experience that same problem. So when Jesus says, wash each other's feet, what does that mean today in our setting? So I would suggest that the way we're supposed to read this is the way Jesus displayed it. We have been invited into a spiritual process of helping people that have largely been cleansed to keep clean, to keep the dirt and accumulation that they experience as they come in contact with the world from hindering their lives as well. It's a spiritual endeavor first and foremost, but practically what does it look like? That expression, that servanthood has to somehow get feet on the ground and be practical. It's about loving others more than yourself and wherever that may practically lead. It's not about the job. It's not about the thing that you're doing. It's about the job that the love leads you to do. And then understanding the privilege that you have to help your fellow believer. There are churches that have taken this story, and as a regular part of their ministry, they go through the symbolism of washing people's feet. I love the symbolism, but the danger is that it gets lost, and we think it's about actually washing feet, and we miss the significance of what we've actually been invited to that deeper ministry of walking alongside people as they get dirty in this world and inviting them to allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse their life and showing them how that looks in our life. Near the end of Jesus' teaching on this, he says this in verse 16 and 17, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And then Jesus gives the next to last beatitude, He says this, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You could say it's blessed are the foot washers. So as we close today, I'd just like to ask you, what is it that you consider to be below your pay grade? What is it when somebody asked you, your first thought is, that's not worthy of my time? And I just would invite you to examine that more fully when those opportunities come up. How has God gifted you? And how can you use those gifts to slip into and experience the rest that Jesus offers us as believers by using our gifts and talents for his glory? Well, that's all I've got for today. And just a reminder that at RethinkingScripture.com, 
You'll find much more about Jesus's teaching in the upper room. You can look for it under the Bible Studies tab. And in the next episode, we'll move further into the upper room and the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples, and we'll try to work through the classic question, how big will my mansion be when I get to heaven? Thanks again for listening. And please, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take some time this week to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.